here at the center for the first time? Anyone? How many people of those, or maybe others as well, are very new to meditation, that is, you have not really begun to practice meditation? It's not a, a stigma, it's just that it will help me know how to speak. Okay, so you, you're at a, you're at a, you haven't started actually meditating. I'll do my best, but you're outnumbered tonight, so. In uh, using the phrase, shining the light of of death on life, I don't... I don't know if that is apparent or self-evident to you, what that means. Uh, It might be a strange or seem a strange way to use the language, since we don't seem to think of death as light, but uh, but rather as darkness. Um, What I would like to do over a a number of weeks, and I don't know how long, how many weeks, because what I want to do is, um, there's a short talk that the Buddha ca- uh, gave in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, which is a gradual saying, you sometimes hear it translated. Um, and in that very brief exchange, it's just uh, a page and a half or so, in a little book, uh, the Buddha opens up something that's quite basic uh, to Dharma practice, and that has to do with the a reflection, contemplation of not only death, but aging, sickness. In fact, what I want to do, there are five. Five contemplations, five reflections that from the days of the Buddha until now, until up to this day, are encouraged in every monastery that I've ever practiced at in Asia. Um, you're encouraged to practice them whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person that has nothing to do with it. Uh, in it, of course, you're acknowledging the fact that each one of us must age, each one of us must get sick, each one of us must die. And I'll, I'll go through all five. Uh, but what I'd like to do is, over the next however many Wednesday evenings, um, this evening I'd like to just give you an overview and to put uh, this, these, these reflections in perspective uh, to give you at least a hint as to why take up this matter of uh, aging, sickness, and death while we're still alive. Uh, Why do that? And I'm going to go through these five reflections and however long it takes to cover them. That's how many Wednesdays we'll use. Um, I would say, if you look at the the history of the arrival of uh, the Buddhist teaching in the West, uh, this... uh, taking up of, of uh, death, aging, sickness, and death. I'm going to call for short Maranasati, which is the Pali word for death awareness, or mindfulness of death. This is a very standard, solid practice that's been going on for more than 2,000 years. But it's hardly been taught in the United States or in Europe. 
when the original, uh, when the Dharma was brought here, uh, being one of those of the generation that, that brought the practice here, uh, we kind of conveniently left a lot of things out. We left ethics out. I mean, we didn't, we would say, you know, the five precepts, don't lie, don't steal. Now let's move on to, uh, there was very little chanting, very little ceremony. There still is. In some places, it's more. Uh, the emphasis was, I think, because of our interest in getting high, basically on meditation, somewhat isolated from uh, a comprehensive approach to living, which uh, the Buddha, Buddha's teaching provides us with. And so uh, even metta came in a little bit later. It came in in, in a token way, metta's loving-kindness. Essentially, we uh, stayed clear of anything that was unpleasant, like we didn't want to... Uh, tell you that you shouldn't lie, steal, misuse sexual energy. Um, we did want to emphasize meditation and wisdom and uh, the wonderful feelings that can come from a meditative life. And then all of us, this is not just my conclusion, uh, we've talked this over many times, uh, at a certain point realized that uh, the Dharma is like an organism, it really you can't just throw out certain things. Um, it's not that we have to take all the culture-bound things that come from Asia. Uh, some of them are unique to the history, culture, and geography of Asia and are, are not finally relevant here. But there are other aspects of practice that are universal, and that's, of course, as far as I can tell, the only reason it should be here is that it is universal. And little by little, we've been uh, patching up the holes. And I think metta is now in, very, very strong. But metta is still happy, right? And anapanasati, the breath is still happy. If we had started teaching death awareness, I think this place would be a, still would be a, a real estate office. or uh, you know, Because some of the, there are some specific meditations, like contemplating the decay of the body. Uh, and, and I don't think that would have been understood properly when we first started. And also, we're, uh, we're from this culture. The teachers, the American Western teachers in Europe as well, from this culture. And I think we also had a, um, perhaps it's too strong, but an aversion to dealing with death in this way, just like the whole culture. That has changed quite a bit, as we all know. Now it's almost gone to the other extreme. It's as if death is the most incredible thing, and I'm adding to it. <laughs> Uh, I remember Ramdas was one of the first to start opening the, the can up and let everything out. And there was one Dharma talk he gave. When I left, it was as if far out, man, death. It was as if I could hardly wait to do it. You know, <laughs> it was just so wonderful. Uh, I think he got a little carried away. Um, so what what uh, Dharma teachings are saying is that. Uh, which I think is a little different than the way things have been treated in our culture, and to a great extent still are treated, is uh, we have tended to see uh, life and death as separate. Um, that is, you're born, and then death comes somewhere down the road uh, as far off as possible, really as far off as possible. And we know it's coming, but down deep, uh, we're not, we hope it won't happen to us, at least not too soon. So we all want to live a ripe old age. The Dharma attitude is very, very different. Uh, you can't separate. Uh, 
It's really more birth, birth, life, and death. It's, it's birth and death is the real opposite. We didn't even talk about it that way. Life is something else. I mean, that is, um, we'll get to that. Uh, if you don't want to die, then you better not get born. Because uh, the moment you're born, you're already, you've already begun the process of dying. Uh, so, uh, death, life and death are walking hand in hand. It's, n- it's just that we have not seen it that way. We've elected not to see it that way. Uh, these series of talks, and I want to make them active, that is, I, in all of them, including beginning with this evening, will say some things, and then I want to draw you out. This is a subject that uh, must be of interest to everyone who's alive, right? Because we will die. Um, if you come, that means you've stepped into the room of death. You've decided to open the door and, or acknowledge that uh, you can't really separate them. They're really uh, their words about the same process. Um, And what I'd like to do this evening is to hint at some of the reasons why we do it and to give you these five reflections. And then over the ensuing weeks, I'd like to go into some uh, depth about each of these reflections. Um, To do it where we come up against uh, uh, an attitude in our culture that couldn't be more different than what uh, the Buddha's mind was like. Now, even in those times, it was similar in some ways. That is, if you, those of you who don't know the myth, or it's a, it's a mixture perhaps, I don't know, maybe we'll never know, of the Buddha's life, uh, the, the leaving the palace. That is, uh, just very briefly, the Buddha had a very sheltered life. Uh, his father wanted him to become a king and not a, uh, a sage. And so shielded him from all of the hardships of life and uh, gave him great luxury, shifted palaces around so that he would not see how difficult life was because he was concerned, based on a prediction by an astrologer, uh, that he, could either, he would either be a king or he would be a leader, a spiritual leader. And so, as the story goes, on one occasion the Buddha leaves the palace and he sees uh, a, per- an, uh, a sick person. And he sees an old person. And he sees a dying, a dead person. And then the fourth time, these are different journeys with his loyal charioteer. Uh, the fourth time he sees a yogi, someone, a meditator, serene and peaceful. Uh, the first three are very upsetting. That is, he sees someone, uh, he sees uh, what age is about, he'd been shielded from that, and disease is about, and also uh, death. And then there, someone else seems to know something else who's serene. That's the, the fourth one. Um, that's what this is an invitation for us to do, is to leave the palace. Now you might say, I've never been in the palace. In a certain way, the palace is not a building. It's a kind of mental edifice that we've constructed to seal ourselves off from certain, what we call, harsh realities. Um, To cling to life and to hate death is useless. Uh, You might agree with me logically. It's useless because we can't do a thing about it. Zero. No matter how much we go to bread and circus, how many massages we get, no matter how much acupuncture, acupressure, Feldenkrais, give me a few more. Vipassana, insight meditation, 
What? Reflexology. We could go, you know, this is a this is a, an, an elite audience here. Yeah. Sorry, but um, everyone in this room, you know, uh, all of us will die without exception. At some point in time, none of us will be around here. At one point in time, none of us were here. I don't know if you've ever reflected on it. We weren't. None of us. Not a one. And at another point in time, none of us will be here. Not only that, don't get lonely. The whole planet will be gone, and not by a nuclear weapon. Saddam Hussein and, uh, you know, everyone. uh, Monica or whatever and all. (laughs) We'll all be gone. And it's been, you know, when we're born, it's as if we're born into a a static kind of life is going on and then we're inserted into this fixed, almost like an entity or a machine going on. And then when we die, we leave, but everything else is going on. It isn't quite that way. It's like everything is happening together. It's uh, We're all being born, aging, getting sick and dying together. Everything is, the whole galaxy, wherever you look. This is a universal law. So when we're born, uh, that's just part of... Uh, a totality, a holistic happening of everyone together. When we die, it's the same thing. We have company. When you die, you're not going to die alone. It'll probably be, I don't know how many, but thousands of people will die the same day. Maybe hundreds of thousands. For all I know, maybe I don't know how many. Someone's probably figuring it out right now with a computer. But they're still going to die no matter how much they figure it out. Okay. And um, in our culture, we have Woody Allen in one film who said, um, something like, uh, mind you, it's not that I'm against death or I'm afraid of death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Which is a very, uh, you know, it's humorous, but it's quite an insightful way of putting it. And if you are a Dharma practitioner, it's the opposite. You are, oh, he said, I'm not afraid. It, I'm not afraid of death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. If you're a Dharma practitioner, Uh, you know you're afraid of death. Or if you don't, you will soon, after I get through. (laughs) We'll just implant it in you, just to make sure the Buddhist theory is correct. Uh, And we do want to be there when it happens. It's uh, quite different. Although there have been individuals who've had inklings as to how to to best do this, because what I'm going to be talking about, it's mainly about life. It's... um, a meditative approach to living and dying. And it's if our understanding of aging, sickness, and death is a certain way. And what I'm saying is really geared to people who are meditators. That's why I asked. Uh, if you've just come in off the street and you've seen, oh, something on death, I think I'll go in. I don't know if it will be so helpful because to accomplish uh, any of the things that I'm mentioning requires a practice, a meditation practice. In fact, finally we'll see that the... the, the Mainly, that's what it's about. This will become clear, if not this evening, as we go on. Uh, I remember uh, a long time ago, there was a a baseball player named uh, Satchel Paige. How many people remember him? He was, uh, this was uh, before African Americans were allowed to play in the major leagues in baseball. And so uh, African Americans had their own league. And he was so famous that everyone knew about him, even uh, though he never... (laughs) until late in life, uh, entered, he finally did make it into the big leagues. Uh, he was both a great pitcher, perhaps one of the greatest, I don't know, but certainly great. Um, could have been a stand-up comic, a, a great clown, and a wise man. 
uh, a kind of dust bowl, uh, earthy person who would say things that had some real wisdom in it. And he was teaching in the major leagues at a relatively old age. I think he was in his mid-40s or so. And he was still going strong. And someone asked him about aging. And he said, um, oh, um, it's just uh, a matter, it's just uh, mind and matter. That's all it's about. It's just mind and matter. If you don't, uh, if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. <laughs> he didn't know how wise he was. I mean, that's, finally you could say that a lot of what I'll be saying, what the Buddha is saying, is that if you understand your mind, it's a totally different thing. In other words, the matter must decay, must disintegrate. It must, it must. There's no, that's a law. Um, so then, how we take that process of the uh, transformation of our body, how we take that process is, uh, makes all the difference in the world. And we don't usually, we're not given much help with that. I don't know what your experience has been, but uh, my own interest in, in the aging process, for some reason, and, uh, goes back to when I was very young, really a child. I would say, I don't know, I remember, I must have been no more than six or seven. I always noticed elderly people who seemed to be together, uh, cheerful, um, had all their marbles, uh, had some dignity, uh, were still very much alive, even if they just shuffled along. And there were obviously not many of them. And to go back to baseball, again, I remember uh, in, in those days there was a team called the Philadelphia Athletics. And their, their manager was Connie Mack, who I believe was about 85 or 86 or 82. Maybe some of you know more about the history of baseball. And when they would come to play in the Yankee Stadium, I was a Yankee fan, whenever he came out of the dugout, or I would always sit so, where I could see him, he was impeccably dressed, uh, erect. And when he didn't like a decision, he would walk out as if it was, uh, he was going to the, the, the king or queen. And with great dignity, just uh, in a tie and a three-piece suit. And, uh, it took him a while and uh, he would just describe why he thought that was an unjust decision and say his piece and then he walked back and I would be more interested in him than in the ball, part, in the ball game when he was there. I just wondered, how does he do it? That's great. Because the old people around me, for the most part, were worn out, worn down, bitter, um, tired. Uh, most of them had worked very hard. They were mostly immigrants. Uh, there was a certain, um, I don't know, bitterness. It's not uh, the only thing that was there, but there was some, of course, and uh, an extremely ironic and uh, highly developed sense of absurd kind of humor and an indefatigable energy in talking about doctors and medicines. <laughs> I mean, in other words, they were Jewish. <laughs> That's the co code word. Uh, the specific medic—I mean, they would have had a field day today. They didn't have all these different drugs to play with. I mean, there are so many toys now. They just had a few. And who had the best doctor, and how long you had to wait to get an appointment, and and so forth. Um, so, for myself, it's been a strong interest. Uh, trying to understand how to age uh, gracefully, which is really how to live. Because I don't think you just decide when you're 70 or 80 or whatever uh, that you're now going to be like Connie Mack. 
uh, I think it has everything to do with how you've been living. So these uh, teachings are for us at whatever age. Some of you are from where I'm looking young. And this is not just for the old fogies in the room. It's for all of us. Uh, why don't I um, see if there's any more preliminaries before I, I read you just... They're, they're very, very brief statements, very commonsensical, at least most of them. Um, what I plan to do is I, I want to, um, when we move through all of these five contemplations or reflections, I want to link them to the different uh, aspects of our meditation practice. Uh, as I look around, I know that very many of you practice here at CIMC and you're doing some version of working with the breath, with awareness, uh, awareness of the body, awareness of feelings, awareness of mind states. Um, some of you are using the breath more than others. Some are using metta more than others. But uh, I'm going to come back to that basic practice because there are some specific meditations that I'll introduce you to that have to do with aging, sickness, and death, including these contemplations. There'll be some suggestions to how to use them. But just your ordinary, simple Vipassana practice that you've been doing for years, some of you, is preparing for death, for aging, sickness, and death, whether you know it or not, if you know how to use it, if you know how to use it. And I'll try to uh, make that very, very clear. Now, even in other words, if you're practicing with whatever is happening to you right now, you are uh, actually improving your ability to have an easy death, I mean, a peaceful death, a death that isn't... Uh, let's say, full of uh, chaos and, and uh, bewilderment and so forth, now assuming there isn't a physical problem with the brain. And even there, there's some things that can be done with the brain, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, if, you're, if we become gaga, there are some things that can be done, but you have to do the homework now while you're not gaga. That's the important point, part of it. Um, what uh, uh, crucial here will be uh, in... For example, the Anapanasati uh, Sutta, the teaching on the full awareness of breathing, which as many of you know, uh, is taught a lot here, and I teach it uh, a fair amount. The 13th contemplation is the key to what we'll be talking about. And in it, it says, uh, this is uh, uh, the beginnings of pure Vipassana practice. Uh, We've already, in this sutra, you've already... Uh, use the breath to develop a somewhat more calm, steady, concentrated mind. And then in Contemplation 13, it says, uh, Breathing in, the meditator notices the changing nature, or the impermanent nature, of all formations. Breathing out, the meditator notices the changing nature, the impermanent nature of all formations. That's exactly what it means. And so when you practice it, you're sitting and breathing and noticing that the condition of the body is changing from moment to moment. Uh, Feelings are going from pleasant to unpleasant, back to pleasant, over to neutral, going from one part of the body to the other. The mind states constantly change. No mood lasts forever. Likes and dislikes change places. We love meditation. We hate meditation. And in this meditation, as you sit and breathe, you see that no matter what the content is, it doesn't matter profound, trivial, boring, interesting, 
positive, negative, it all arises and passes away. That's the doorway for real vipassana practice, the contemplation of impermanence. The Buddha considered impermanence the profound door to enlightenment. That's why it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always there, one way or another, even sometimes more indirect. If you can really uh, begin to see the changing nature of mind and body, then other more complicated notions that uh, give us trouble in terms of understanding, like emptiness, are really self-evident. It's not that complicated. And also the process of letting go and the suffering that comes from our inability to let go, of course, starts to intensify beyond belief. Part of our problem is that we haven't accepted that the world is in constant change, constant flux, and that everything is uncertain because of this law. Because everything is changing and everything is interrelated, everything's uncertain. I mean, it's just uh, pretty clear. But that isn't part of our education. When we grow up, we learn all kinds of things in school. But we don't learn that. And yet everyone knows, everyone knows that everything is changing. How can you not? We know, we study history. We turn on the news. We all know that. We all know that we're going to die. And yet it has very little transformative power. You can be an expert on the history of world cultures, which is basically an expert on the history of change and impermanence, nothing less. And it may have no effect whatsoever on your personal life. Uh, To me, uh, the great gift, or one of the many great gifts of the Buddha, was taking an obvious truth, but uh, taking it one step further, taking it to yourself. Begin to see, it's not only that the ancient Greeks are not here, the ancient Romans are not here, etc., uh, etc. Et it's that soon we won't be here. And even before that, uh, who is this we? Who am I? What is it that is doing this meditation, that's talking now? And as you start to pay attention, you see this law at work. It's a natural law. And it shows no signs of being repealed. It's just going to go on and on. And so, what are our choices? It seems to me we have only one sensible, intelligent choice, is to see this law so that we can align ourselves with it, so that our life is lived in accordance with the way things are. The degree to which we, we don't live in accordance with the way things are, we must suffer unnecessarily. And I don't know if that... I hope that makes sense, at least in terms of words, find myself looking over to this part of the room. Uh, put it more positively, as we begin to see this law at work, it's not all bad news, it's just a law, it's just true. Uh, it becomes easier to uh, stay with what's happening in the present moment and to allow it to go when it's time to go arrives, and to uh, allow things to be there as long as they have to be there, even though we don't want them to be there. In short, it becomes easier to live. So the thirteenth contemplation where you're watching the law of impermanence in a microscopic way, you're seeing it from moment to moment in this breath. The breath keeps changing, the body changes, our mental states keep changing. That's tremendous practice in terms of understanding what I'm going to read to you right now. So the microscopic feeds these contemplations that I'll be reading to you, and they in turn... um, contribute to a deeper sensitivity to seeing that law at work uh, in our own body, in our own mind. 
this is um, what the Buddha had to say. Five contemplations for everyone. That's one translation of it. Well, uh, there are five themes to be taken up frequently for reflection and contemplation. It's another way of uh, way with which it's been translated. There are five facts, O monks, and I should make that term clear, because some of you who are new to uh, to Buddha Dharma, uh, monks, especially when used in a context like this, uh, don't literally just mean people who have taken robes. It means every serious meditator, anyone who's really practicing. There are five facts, O monks, which ought to be often contemplated upon by men and women, lay folk and monk. It means everyone. What are these five? The first one, I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. Pretty simple statement. Uh, but have we gotten that? That is, we're not exempt from this lawfulness. Um, uh, there's, there's no exceptions. The second contemplation to be done frequently, I'm sure to become sick. I can't avoid sickness. The third, I'm sure to die. I cannot avoid death. So we all must age, we all must uh, become sick from time to time, and each and every one of us must die. Um, Has your mood changed? It seems like it has to me, I mean, as a group. But you don't have to tell me, but at this moment, see if those simple words, and I'm not putting much energy into it, see if they've, even just hearing these words, have already affected your consciousness. I don't know. The fourth, in all things, it gets a little worse. In all things, (laughs) dear and beloved, there will be change and there will be separation from them. In all things, dear and beloved, there will be change and there will be separation from them. Um, Another way of putting this is that uh, we can't take anything with us. Uh, Finally, when the time comes to die, uh, all of our acquisitions must be let go of. Your rare book collection, your wonderful china, uh, our reputation, all these fantastic self-images we've built up, our outfits, our uh, home, car, not to mention the people who are so close to us and who we're close to. We have to let go of all of that. Uh, that's an obvious truth. Uh, we will we'll be separated from them. The only thing that now uh, here probably uh, will split ranks and a small number of people will really agree and then a whole bunch will get off the train. But anyway, this has to do with karma. And of course, it's implying uh, something that's taken for granted in Buddhist teachings, but not for most modern people, which is that uh, there's more to life. Life goes on. This body dies, but there's continuity. Okay, the fifth one, and this one um, is really the ray of light that enables number one, two, three, and four to not, be, not only not be bad, but for it to be fine. I am owner of my actions, in more language that everyone knows now, karma. I am owner of my actions, heir of my actions. Actions are the womb from which I uh, have sprung. Actions are my kin. Actions are my protection. 
whatever actions I do, good or bad, I shall become their heir. Now, if you don't uh, have no faith, confidence, belief, you think it's just a bunch of nonsense about uh, rebirth and redeath, rebirth and redeath, uh, you can still get some benefit from this reflection. Because um, it's not as if we, are, uh, we have to wait for another lifetime to reap uh, the consequences of how we behave. It's happening right now. So what we call good and bad karma, and the best karma is no karma, beyond good and bad, uh, that's happening right now. Uh, and so when we start to understand that you can't escape the consequences of your actions, that uh, let's say you lie to someone, uh, and maybe no one finds out, but you know, you found out that you lied, and maybe you carry around a bit of remorse or guilt, or uh, you steal, or, or, or uh, misuse sexual energy, or uh, whatever it is, uh, of course, a lot of the, the consequences are quite overt. We get arrested, we're thrown in jail. Uh, people uh, try to hurt us back. In short, uh, actions have consequences. So we don't have to wait for another lifetime to see that. And our character is what we must live with. So that stays with us. You don't take your rare book collection. Uh, I can't take CIMC with me. But from moment to moment. If CIMC burns down and is gone, or if everyone decides that uh, this Buddha Dharma stuff is just a bunch of nonsense, and then a new thing comes in from uh, Zoroastrianism, it is now becomes, and everyone in Cambridge starts worshiping the moon, or I don't know, whatever it is that comes next. Uh, this place may go, and all the books may go, and every, but I'm stuck with myself. I'm still walking around with who I've created. My character, that's with me. And so you don't have to wait for another lifetime to reap the fruit. It's, we're, in that sense, we're being born and dying countless times every day. Countless times a sense of ego is born around something that is either pleasurable and uh, enhancing or undermines and hurts the ego, or it hurts the body, or that uh, compromises our, uh, the, what, we can, what we call living, or enhances what we call living. So. Uh, it's quite relevant for right now. It's uh, finally you can't escape who you are. And that's, of course, why meditation is aimed at that. Meditation is aimed at that which is inescapable. It's our uh, experience right here and now, and now and forever. That's the stuff of the Apostle meditation. Okay, so what? These five. Um, this evening, I just, I just wanted to be an overview, just a hint at uh, what might come out of this. And then uh, in subsequent evenings, we'll, we'll move very, very slowly. And, and uh, I hope we can, when we finish, it'll be uh, pretty clear, not only what's meant here, and I think a lot of it is self-evident, but uh, how that might affect you in terms of how you actually live. Because this is uh, meant to be very helpful in how we live. Granted, all of us must age, we must get sick, we must die, give up everything, etc. Uh, but if, if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Satchel Page was right. Okay. Now, that's a tricky one because you can't just say, well, okay, then I just won't mind. You can say it. But as we know, uh, doing it's another thing. 
Um, what might be the benefits of these reflections? And let me uh, sketch out uh, what I even mean by a reflection. Let's say if you're at a monastery, uh, from time to time, let's say sometimes these are chanted, or from time to time you reflect on them, that is, uh, you take them up and you just think. You can either go through all five, uh, or you just take one. It's tremendous room for creativity. I had a, a Tibetan teacher, and they had a tradition where uh, every time he would teach, uh, he, he would say it in Tibetan, and finally I asked him, what was he saying? I could hear him. He would have his beads and he'd be muttering something to himself in Tibetan, you know. Finally, I said, what is it you say right before, uh, for a couple of minutes before you start giving a talk? And he said, oh, yeah, uh, I must get old, I must die. I must get old, I must die. I must get sick. And I said, well, why do you do that? He says, uh, so I don't get uh, caught up in any of the vanity that might come from teaching Dharma. As, you know, so it's a kind of self-protective. Uh, uh, but you can use it for anything. I use any of these reflections, or death is a good one once you, uh, if it is good, it's not for everyone. Let's say on a retreat or when I'm sitting and if I'm very tired and sleepy, and you know all the suggestions we make, and uh, watch it, look at it, uh, stand up, uh, put cold water on you, walk fast, but sometimes nothing works. Uh, when that time comes, I just have to reflect on my death. I would say about 80% of the time, I'm very awake if I'm able to genuinely contemplate my own death. If I can genuinely do it, I can't always do it. Sometimes the words are there, but you know, though you've all had much more experience with metta. You know, uh, sometimes you just say it and it's just cardboard, right? May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. May all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. <laughs> you know, it's just, we just drone on. And at other times, uh, it's fully embodied. We're just totally, uh, there's so much juice. I mean, it's really alive. We sincerely mean, mean it. We sincerely wish ourselves well. We sincerely wish other people well. Uh, and then, so you understand, it's similar. This is similar. Um, a reflection, one of the ways you work with it, and of course, we can go into it in a little bit more detail when we move on, is that sometimes when you bring up these phrases, um, it elicits, elicits a certain emotion, like it might be fear or loneliness or a resistance, like, oh, I don't want to look at this. And the practice would then be to look at that. In other words, so it's uh, brought something up, because you're inviting trouble, right? If you do, you're asking for trouble if you do this stuff. You're saying, uh, I must age. I'm not exempt from that. And then that might bring up terror of aging. If that's like in the, hidden in your consciousness, maybe it's down there under a rock somewhere, and from time to time you get an inkling of it, but it's well under control. Well, this is an invitation for it to say, it's all right, you can come out from under that rock now and come on up. And then maybe it comes up and it brings along with it some terror. But we wouldn't encourage someone to do that unless their practice was able to make constructive use of, let's say, the fear of death that comes up. So when it comes up, you'd practice with it just as you practice with anything else. The whole art then would be uh, awareness with equanimity, to just examine that fear, examine that uh, apprehension or anguish, or, or examine that total unwillingness to look at it, denial, whatever it is. And if you're able to do it, that's a valuable piece of practice. So over time, one of the benefits that can come out of this is you weaken some of these deep-seated 
fears that we have about aging, sickness, and death. You weaken them. Um, some people can get free of it altogether. But I think uh, all of us, we're ordinary people. We have a lot of other things going on in our life. Is it realistic to be able to weaken a lot of these? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I've finished the course. I don't know if the course is ever finished. But relative to where I started, it's helped me a lot, and I've seen it help other people as well. So that's one of the kinds of benefits that, that come up, is that you bring to the surf surface any uh, problems that you might have, latent apprehension. And, but you see, you wouldn't do it unless you really see that as a wise thing to do and a useful thing to do. This practice is not for everyone at every time. If you're in a particular time in your life when you're undergoing great loss or depression, and maybe you're very, very new to practice, I don't think this is a good idea to do. I mean, I have to know you. Sometimes it could be, but by and large, uh, there are certain times, and you will, fortunately, most of the time, it's self-selected, you'd know. Uh, ideally, it's that you already have some samadhi, some steadiness of mind. Uh, and now, let, let's move on a little bit. So that can be helpful. Um, what other things can come up, can, can come out of this, that are beneficial? Um, compassion. If you realize uh, that, uh, that it isn't just happening to you, you're not just being singled out, that uh, all of us are comrades in aging, sickness, and death, all of us. Uh, and I use this, uh, it's not, I mean, not hundreds of times a day, but I find it very, very, very helpful. If I fall into a petty, small mind, or something with somebody, or something that's stupid, sometimes what uh, snaps that, what uh, short circuits that kind of reaction is, uh, contemplating the fact that this person and we're subject to the same law. We're all, all of us here for, uh, for a short period on this strange planet. We're all here for a short period. And when I, it's an affinity that we all have with each other. Unfortunately, uh, from a planetary point of view, we don't seem to get it because we did, there'd be no need for war. Um, why have war? We're all going to die anyway. Just be patient. <laughs> you know, you know, your enemy will die out. The Israelis will be gone if you're a Palestinian. The Palestinians will be gone if you're Israeli, etc. Of course, a new batch will come, and who knows what they'll do. Probably the same old thing, you know, based on history. I don't mean just them, all of us. Uh, but it can be very, very useful, including with animals, everything. When you, you look around, you understand. Now, most people don't see it that way. It can really uh, tender, tenderize your heart when you understand that all of us now, it's affecting us whether we acknowledge it or not. We all know how fragile we are. We all know how uncertain life is. Who has not had losses in their life? Who has not... Okay, now, some of what these phrases do is not only that you take them up specifically, they start uh, making you more sensitive to the natural occurrence of these events. Personally, this is what I um, excites me most about the practice. I find it... Uh, dynamic and really alive. That is, you start to notice aging. Most important, of course, in yourself. You start to notice sickness and get some of the implications of what it is. Not to become hypochondriacal or become a real whiner, you know, like, oh, I'm... Uh, but you um, can begin to uh, bring these events into practice. 
you make them explicit parts of your practice. In other words, it's a naturalistic approach. Uh, it's happening all over. You just every movie is full of it. Every uh, time you flip on the news, uh, it would be a rare event when something of this is not part of what's happening. But now these things are all like reminders. In fact, in the Dharma, let's say if someone you love dies, really if anyone you, anyone dies, but if someone you love dies, uh, that's the last gift that they've given to you if, if you're a yogi, if you're a meditator. Because what they're telling you is that of a whip and they run fast. Others, you have to whack them a little bit and then they start to run fast. Others, you've got to really put something behind it and then they run fast. And the fourth, you've got to really draw blood or get right into the bone before they get it. And then they start to run. And he used this image once, uh, I believe it was in, a, in an exchange with Ananda, but don't quote me on it. At any rate, what he was implying that is, for example, some people hear about a death in a faraway village and they wake up. Other people, most of us, that isn't enough. Other people wake up when it's somebody in their own village, and then they saw it kind of, it stirs them to uh, understand they don't have forever, and to uh, examine their life more carefully. A third person needs to have, it has, someone has to uh, die in their own family before they get it. And the fourth person, you have to be given a diagnosis, you know, that you're, you have, don't have a much a longer to live. And then it, it certainly uh, affects you. Uh, I've had a number of friends. One, one of my friends recently died, and uh, I spent time with him in the hospital, a meditator, and he uh, used the practice well. And it was quite inspiring uh, to see the way he handled extraordinary pain and uh, death from a hospital bed for a period of months. But he'd been practicing for 20 years, and in a certain sense there was no difference. Uh, it's just that now, he, well it was, it was even more intense. He was on fire. And it was not even depressing. Sometimes it was. But much of the time it wasn't because he was so clear. And he understood there was no place to go but practice. His wife was there, his child was there. But of course, I've had one or two other friends who it took something like a very serious diagnosis. And finally, that person wakes up. And often they bring us along. I have another friend who was just like all of us until he was diagnosed with AIDS. And now, whenever you're around him, he has such a heightened sensitivity to how precious life is that you can't help but be affected in a positive way by being around him. He wasn't like that uh, before, he re before this illness struck. So which horse are, are we? Most of us are probably number, you know, the last one, the fourth or the third one. I'm, I, think I'm, I think I'm the fourth one. That's why I have to do all this stuff. I know I'm retarded. <laughs> and these practices really are designed that, uh, otherwise, why would we need these techniques? We would just get it. It's so obvious. There's death all around us. There's aging all around us. There's sickness all around us. It's wherever you go. And that's in the Bhagavad Gita, they say, what's the, the most miraculous thing in life? That we're surrounded by death, but no one thinks that it's going to happen to them. <laughs> okay. So, practice is an attempt to uh, 
cultivate to enliven that sense so you don't have to wait until you get some uh, serious diagnosis. Okay, now, he, we're getting closer to, uh, I would say, the deep benefits. And then a very specialized one, which I uh, will suggest tonight, and those of you who are new, I don't see how you could possibly relate to it, but I'll tell you about it. Um, one of the benefits that comes from starting to become more sensitive uh, to these obvious facts of life is that you start to become more sensitive. That's one of them. Uh, because it's very easy, to, if you don't grasp this, complacency is the norm. So this can wake you up, you can become much more sensitive. So that's a value for everyone, meditator or not meditator. It's not that uh, you have to be a meditator to wake up to these things. Many people have uh, awakened to the value of life when something, some tragedy has hit. They, were, they never heard of meditation. So that's a, a human possibility. If you're a meditator and these happen, uh, it can really enhance... Uh, see, th- that's why I've used the phrase shining the light of death on life. Because if you understand how to use death in this sense, uh, it's life, uh, it's enlivening. It can help develop compassion. It can help order your priorities. It can help you take a look and examine how you live and to see if, is this how I really want to live? Because you understand that you don't have forever. And then, of course, you have a choice. You might, it's not as if if you do this that everyone's going to just go running to all the meditation centers. Some of you may just go to uh, Las Vegas and just want to spend, uh, you know, just or sex, drug, and rock and roll. Yeah, that's right, we don't have forever. And that, maybe that's where we go. Uh, but in some way, it will get you to see what's important to you. And it can make us understand that life is extraordinarily precious. Now we get to one more refinement. And this is really a crucial uh, aspect of what the Buddha was getting at. Um, you know, there's there's a, a step just before this, at least the way my mind has experienced all this. These contemplations, if you read the whole sutra, I didn't give you the whole sutra. I gave you those five contemplations. And then there's a bit of a, the Buddha gives a, a very brief commentary. One of the benefits of these um, reflections is uh, the loss of pride. That is, if you're young, you have tremendous pride in being young. You may not know you do, but you just feel you can do anything, right? And everything. Haven't we all? I mean, I know I've... Uh, you know, and then uh, us old folks look back and we say that youth is wasted on young people because they do such stupid things. I mean, just look around today. It's just so idiotic. How are we? You know, what did we do when we were their age? With all these new ways to express themselves. They're not our ways. At any rate, it's not just to, uh, that there, a pride develops around about being young, but it, uh, this pride... Uh, uh, overwhelms or dulls or, or compromises our wisdom. And so the actions that come out of us are unskillful and are much more likely to cause suffering for ourselves and others. That's the key point. See, we're starting to move into practice, into Dharma practice. So it's not, no one's against young people being young. It's that because of this uh, blindness, uh, that energy 
uh, can lead, it's not that every young person does this, can lead to uh, actions that uh, have very little wisdom in it. The same with illness. If we don't reflect on illness, when we're healthy, there's a certain pride in our health. Some people have, are by nature very healthy, you know, genetically and so forth. And, and there's just feeling of uh, buoyancy and boundless energy. It's related to being young, but it can go on. And there are people who are much older who have it. Maybe they haven't been sick much. Or even when we're healthy, we feel that we can uh, disregard a lot of the laws of nature. And then our wives tell us and our mothers not to. And we don't listen to them. We get sick. I mean, every time, my mother was right, 99% of the time, but I didn't listen. So that there's a certain pride in a, in a health that is much more fragile than we realize. It can't last. Everyone must get sick. And so the mind that doesn't see that may have a certain arrogance. It's not the usual way that we think of arrogance, but it is a kind of arrogance. And in terms of death, too, uh, that, that's been hinted at already. Uh, a lot of the actions that go on in the world are, it, come from people, it seems, who think they're going to live forever. You know, how can, otherwise, why would they behave so stupidly? Why do we behave so stupidly? We haven't gotten that. How fragile each and every one of us is. How precious each and every one of us is. So these reflections help in that way. But finally, and here's the part that... Um, when these are taught in a Buddhist context to practitioners, please understand that. I hope it's beneficial to some of you who maybe you're in here for the first and last time. Maybe some of these words are just of benefit to any human being. They're just simple, wise insights that the Buddha had and that everyone has had. You know, they're not so special, really. And maybe it wakes you up just a little bit, but you, don't, you never come back here or go to another meditation center. But what, the main thrust of why the Buddha is using these meditations is not just to enhance our sense of the preciousness of life, but to enhance our sense of the preciousness of a life of meditation practice, of Dharma practice. Can you see the distinction now? If you really are doing it, there's no separation because a practice and life become the same thing, and that is correct practice, at least my understanding. But to begin with, there's quite a bit of separation. That is, let me see if I can come up with a, an example. When death touches us in some way, then we may look at people and we may look at nature and there may be a, a more uh, appreciation. Uh, we may be a little bit kinder to the people in our life. Something humbling has happened to us. Even if you never meditate, it's not a, it, that can happen. But that doesn't necessarily prompt you uh, to go to the depths of a, of a sincere meditation practice. Uh, that has the promise of going even deeper than that. You see, finally, another message of, the, of what we've just been saying is that, well, if everyone must get old, sick, and die, and be separated from everything that they, that's, that's dear, uh, is there anything outside of death? And of course, uh, there is. That's the whole point. That's what makes it a spiritual practice. In our uh, particular tradition, it's referred to as the unconditioned, or the deathless, or the unborn, or uh, Buddha nature, or intrinsic nature, or enlightenment, or nirvana. That is, that's why <clears throat> the real issue is birth and death. Those keep alternating. Life just goes on. Life just goes on. According to this teaching, 
even when the physical body dies, there's a mental continuum that goes on. But let's limit it to this life, because uh, I don't want to take on uh, whether you believe in or don't believe in rebirth. I don't finally think it's uh, fatal if you don't. If you understand that finally, uh, as the Buddha pointed out over and over again, there's nothing that you can depend on for genuine security. Nothing. Because everything is uncertain. This is not to say don't get married, don't love your children. But if you're depending on that, uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Because it doesn't work. So is there anything that we can depend on? And it turns out the only thing you can depend on is yourself. But it's not the self that you depend on. It's not saying become the biggest egomaniac in town. That's the problem. That's what's afraid of dying anyway. Often when you have fear of dying, look closely at it. See if it's really dying you're afraid of or if it's the idea that you're going to die. And find out who's afraid. You'll see it's me, of course. And me has worked so hard to become a good me, a big me, a wealthy me, a successful me, an articulate me, a kind me, a humanitarian me, a bodhisattva me. And you mean that all goes. Sorry. Okay. So practice, as you know, is cutting through all of that. It's getting to the essence. In Buddhist language, the true nature of mind. Now, so this can be a real incentive for practitioners when they understand it's not to, uh, for example, everything's going to be taken away from us. Remember the fourth one? We're separated. That may sound like just terrible news. What does that mean? That we should all give it away? For some, that's the answer. But it's not a full answer. That means you become a monk or a nun and you just live on very little. But I've lived in monasteries and you can be an egomaniac about nothing. You know, you're the biggest nothing in the monastery. You know, you have, I, I am serious. Yeah, I'm serious. Your robes are the most tattered. Uh, you have the oldest bowl. You, uh, it doesn't matter what food you plop in my bowl, I'm always content. Now, that could be a sign of freedom, and it also would be a sign that the ego is finally cornered and saying, okay, what have I got to work with? Nothing. You know, uh, uh, let's make the most out of my bowl. Okay. Um, so practice uh, is designed to get to that place that's free. Uh, now, obviously, that's not, that takes some effort. That takes some commitment. It's not something that just drops from the sky. Uh, you can pray for it if you like. Now, some forms of prayer to me are high, are equivalent to very deep forms of meditation, but most are you know, wanting someone to do it for you. Clearly, in the Buddha's way, that's not what it's about. Uh, so, what, the, what the, uh, these reflections can have as a benefit is to really set a fire under your, our butt to wake us up and can it, really, it can really strengthen your practice. Now, it doesn't mean you have to give up your partners, your wives, your husband, your house, your Mercedes. That's not where the suffering comes in. It's the attachment to it. So, does that sound familiar? It's the same old boring Vipassana practice. You, that's what I mean. You, the practice you're doing now is getting you ready to have an easier death. If you can die now to your possessions, it's not the giving away of them. It's your relationship to all of your achievements, your accomplishments. And that's why, finally, uh, it's talked about as having 
no att having uh, no attachment to life or death. Now that might sound bleak, but it's just the opposite. Having no attachment to life or death means you're fully alive while you're alive, totally 100% alive. And when the time comes to die, you're f you just die, 100%. No regrets. You're burnt out. You've fully done what you could, and now it's come to it's time to die, and it's a natural thing. It's not necessarily a catastrophe, a disaster. It is for the ego, because the ego wants to live forever, and that is futile. It's hopeless. So it can want it all at once, but the law doesn't change. So, uh, in a sense, the deepest uh, fruit of this, of this kind of practice, all of these other things are helpful. This benefit to anyone who practices, even a little bit, if you have less fear of aging, sickness, and death. And in future meetings, we'll get very concrete about, if you're willing to be open, I'm going to be open, we'll talk about actual uh, apprehension we have about aging, sickness, and death, and so forth, and having to lose everything. Because practice is designed, it's set, we're back to uh, Satchmo Page, uh, no mind, no matter. I mean, if you don't, no problem. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but uh, the problem is that the body must age, get sick, and die. There's no question about that. So the sooner you get that one, the better. <laughs> but the mind is not going to get it. See, when I say the sooner you're better, the, the body has got to do that. It's lawful. It's not the body's problem. The mind has a big problem with that. Now, that is, that's some of the stuff of meditation. That's some of the stuff of meditation. Um, I think that's enough to just hint at where we're going, and then we'll pick up from next time and uh, begin to go more slowly and carefully and uh, much more concretely. Uh, and I hope we can uh, integrate it with your actual life, because I would like this to be uh, something that's about us, not just some, the Buddha said, the Buddha said, and so forth. Um, those of you who need to leave now, it would be a good time to take a break. If you're running out of here after having heard this, your first talk here, uh, I don't see how anyone new can possibly, when they get the message of age, sickness, and death, for, the, for them to realize how precious their life is so that they can practice. Uh, that's unrealistic because you don't really know how precious practice is until you've done it for a while. And it's only if you've really seen it, subjectively, personally, that you can understand what a precious gift it is and how fortunate you are to be alive and be able to do it. So if you're new and what I said sounded like speculation or speculative or theoretical, of course it is. Anyway. Mind that is? Please. I think you're going to have to speak up though because some people are still walking out.
looking at something as real to me as my mother's death and as unreal to me as the real world. Well, what, what's unreal about the real world? I guess what I wanted to say is just that I don't feel as surrounded by death, by old age, sickness, and death, as much as I feel surrounded by death by commitment phobia. You know, this doesn't exempt that. Yes, we're going to, but uh, you see, the fact that people are not intimate, that they can't commit themselves, they're still going to die. Let's say they do become intimate and can commit themselves, so you don't have that problem. They're still going to get old, sick, and die. We just, we're, it's not to, the, to exclude all the other things. Now, what I didn't get into tonight is that the idea of intimacy, I'm glad you brought that term up, uh, one view of practice, and it's one that I, um, I found very helpful, is that practice itself is the practice of intimacy. And that uh, one of the challenges is these events of aging, of sickness and death, what could be closer, right? They're right in our face. And what do we push further? We push it way out away. Intimacy of practice begins with the breathing. Do you do this meditation practice? Yes. Okay. So when we learn to be intimate with the breath, which is not so easy, and we learn to be intimate with the sensations in the body, and we learn to be intimate with the sound and so forth, you know, finding out what does that mean. No separation. That, of course, extends into relationship as well. But if you're adding a problem that is that, that you're not seeing this, that's fine. I won't disagree with you. People don't commit themselves or they have a difficulty being intimate. But can you relate that to what's being said tonight? I'm not saying that this is, I'm talking about everything. I'm just talking about this underlying uh, aspect of living for all of us, no matter what the rest of our life is like. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I'm glad that you talked about the business of being more fully alive. Yes. Because I feel that I have even heard little glimpses at times when I've been in here, people even using the meditation practice and using the Buddhist Dharma to perpetuate that lack of community. Quite right. Quite right. Uh, <clears throat> and that's a very good point. It's not just here. It's a... Um, a byproduct of meditation, and you'll find it, <clears throat> I, I mainly know the Buddhist schools, you'll find it in all of them, and sometimes it goes something like this. We've all gotten wounded in life, right? Maybe we, do, we meet people who don't want to be intimate, and then we want to marry and they leave us, or, or we leave them, or we've been disappointed and we can't make a commitment, or the people we want to make a commitment can't. We've gotten hurt in occupations, we've gotten hurt in any number of ways. So we, we crawl out of the battlefield to the, uh, you know, the, the, the field hospital in war terms. You know, there's like a tent in the middle of it uh, to heal up. And that's the meditation retreat center. And then uh, uh, real teaching is saying uh, that's helpful to go into, if you're sick, to go into the hospital. CIMC in that sense is a hospital. Okay. But it's not, we don't want you to live your whole life in CIMC. I mean, I do. I live up on the third floor, but fortunately, you will be able to get a pardon from the governor, I mean, and get out of here. Uh, so what I'm, what, I, what I'm getting at is that uh, meditation can be misused so that we have a dualistic notion. We divide life into sort of uh, the crass, ugly, materialistic business world where people are mean and uh, they're ambitious and they just want to make money and they eat meat, and, uh, uh, and they have no sensitivity, and they don't want to commit themselves or be intimate. 
And then the spiritual world where we sit on our cushion. Ah, quiet, nice. And everyone's a vegetarian on 90%, or, or they hint at it. And, uh, and we go to these retreats, and it's even better, it's out in the country. And that can become a kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenia. So, but, Yes. Okay, but wait, now we're getting close because the fact that things are impermanent doesn't mean they're worthless. It can mean they're even more precious. That's what I've been saying. But now, if they, if they become precious and you grasp onto them, you see, because uh, there are plenty of people who love life, but they don't love the Dharma. And uh, often they're, they're wonderful. I mean, they're salt of the earth, and they, they live, but they're suffering a lot, tremendous amount, too. Uh, this is a different way of loving life. That is, because things are impermanent, doesn't mean they're not, they have no, they're not of, of any value. Quite the contrary. That is, if you begin to see the law of impermanence in a vivid way, personally, not just as a concept, then your children, your loved ones, they become incredibly precious to you. You know you don't have forever to enjoy them. Okay. But someone could go the other direction. And said, well, they're just going to go and die on you anyway, so why even get involved? Okay. Uh, and some practices maybe even imply that, but I would say that is not what we're, we're teaching here. Now, on the way, you may have to crawl into the field hospital and relatively poo-poo the rest of life so that you can strengthen your, in quote, sitting practice. But the day comes if you have a teacher who understands, they're going to say, okay, let's get back into the, into the battlefield. You see, there's no field hospital. There's no place to hide. Can you hide from death or age or sickness? There's no place to run. Even in terms of anything else, there's no place to hide. Even if you're alone, you can be miserable. So, uh, so I hear what you're saying now. And this teaching, it, it depends what you do with it. This teaching could get you to become more despondent. That's why I'm, uh, you have to be careful about taking it up as a practice. And uh, say, well... Um, well, I'm not even going to have flowers on my altar. They just go and die on you. They're beautiful for two or three days, and then they're gone. I'm never going to have flowers, and I'm never going to do... Well, soon, do you see what I'm getting at? Whereas there's a, a more subtle point. To me, it's more wisdom in it, which is you don't throw, throw or you get plastic flowers, which is not wisdom. You get flowers. <laughs> you, you fully appreciate the beauty of the flowers. That's what flowers are. They're beautiful. And, and they do something nice to us. And, you, and when they die, they die. And so you love them while they're there, and then you, you allow them to go. Most of us can do that with flowers, but we have a harder time with other things. What is he longing for? But, okay, but you see, this is a, uh, please don't, I hope you don't get in, uh, offended by what I have to say. But on uh, one hand, maybe this society is organized in a way that makes it difficult to accomplish uh, depth of relationship, intimacy, and, so, and even commitment and maybe we have to swing back a bit. But finally, are you real? 
You see, uh, you can't, in other words, there are differences in the, way, in, in the way the environment is ordered. Some are more crazy, some are less, uh, granted. But finally, otherwise there'd be no reason for these teachings. Then Marxism would have been correct. Marxism is trying to reorganize the society. And they have a very primitive psychology. And so what happens is people don't change. You know, they still have greed, hatred, and delusion. Only now it's got Marxist language. Uh, Gandhi did real work on himself. And he was able to hold millions of people together and prevent bloodshed. As soon as he was killed, it was a bloodbath. Because they were held by his moral strength. But they hadn't done the inner work. So it's true. We probably need to change the outer world somewhat so it's more so we don't spend our whole life on the internet and not speak to the person living in the house with us. Okay. But in the meantime, uh, it always comes back to, uh, do you, in other words, life is real if you are. See, if you are, then you're going to attract other people who feel the way you do and who want to be real, too. And the fax machine, there's nothing wrong with a fax machine or a great computer. It just, it does seem, it does seem we've gone out, of, it's out of control. You know, we have fantastic machines there amazing and the people are we're just the way the human beings are the way we have been for thousands of years we're just it's the same old stuff it's like we haven't learned how to live with each other no matter how long we've lived on this planet we have these amazing computers and clean bathrooms and we have wonderful and the people we're just doing the same thing we just instead of clubs you know with, you know and leopard skins we just we vaporize each other and we blame india and pakistan you know that's not the problem but do you see what I'm getting at? So, start, in other words, it's okay to have the social critique, but find out if the social critique is deflecting attention from numero uno, on you, from you. See, the practice is, is always about you. And if you want to then start doing things about changing the outer world, by all means. It's sometimes called engaged Buddhism now. But that won't do too much good if, if you don't really work on yourself. That's just something I've seen over and over again. Do the words make any sense? Yeah. You didn't get insulted. No. Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Please. Well, wait, why would you go into the medical profession if you don't want to deal with life and death? Well, I see. Okay. I needed to know that. Yeah. The environment that I'm in now, I'm working with a lot of geriatric patients who have strong problems, and you have to recommend this guy, you have to do this, so you can't eat at all, and you have to have energy to live. And professionally, I have to give people this, you know, this is what you're going to do, or this is going to die, you're going to die, or this could happen to you if you're sick. Whereas personally, my choice might be. Well, wait, wait, you're going too fast for me. What, what might your choice be? If I were 90 years old and if I didn't stop eating or if I had to eat all the baby food to live, I may choose not to do that. Okay. And um, I find that a lot of times when you're 90, people, other people are making that decision to be like their kids who don't want to be Right. But people are living when they're not sitting in a chair and they're not talking and they're not being able to eat. Okay. I just don't know how to find peace with myself in terms of recommending a profession that I'm doing 
Okay, I think there are a number of issues here uh, mixed in together. One is that. That is, uh, I understand people who work in the medical field, uh, what choices are you? What choices do you have? I mean, you could change your work uh, or you could get used to the fact that uh, some of it is, is even law. Or is, you know, so uh, this is the society you live in. Or you could become like Dr. What's his name? Who just Dr. Death? You know, and uh, you want to die? Fine, I'll help you. Okay. Uh, the Buddhist way is similar to all the other major religions, really. It's to, um, it's a, it's, it would be to, it's not pro-suicide. It's pro-life, right to the end. Uh, there are times, although, if there, you know, this gets to be interpretive, because these new machines now, there's nothing in the Buddhist time to talk about that. But if the person is really brain-dead, then more recent Buddhist thinking is that you don't have to keep the life support system going. You know. But that's going to be a matter of, But let's get to you. See, because how does this have to do with what we've been talking about tonight have to do with you? And I, I mainly want to get back to something you just included as an aside, which is I picked work that wouldn't have to do with life or death. It sounded like you were motivated for that, right? Okay, and it looked like you uh, couldn't escape it. it. Here it is, right in your face. Okay, okay so the, pra- the practice would be to work with the way it is for you. Now, there are a couple of things mixed in here. One is your conflict between what you would tell the person and what you feel that you must tell them professionally. Now, I don't know if that's true. Uh, it may be that maybe you're holding yourself to a standard that maybe it's not. Well, probably you can't tell people, oh, just stop eating and just forget about it. Don't listen to what these doctors, they're a bunch of fools. We're all just giving party line and just do whatever you want to do. Uh, probably you can't say that. But uh, the part that we're getting at tonight is, um, are they pushing a button in you, reminding you of your own aging, sickness and death? But what do you feel? Do you ever feel uh, uncomfortable just for the fact that, they're, that they are in that state? Forget about this other issue. I know they're all mixed in together. Yeah. Okay, but has it reminded you that you will be in that state or something like it? Yeah. Okay, now we're cooking. Okay, it's, your, it's a free country. Um, why not die now? See, that's what the... That's what the t- die to that... There's some, the mind that's um, preoccupied with uh, self-continuity forever is the one that's afraid of all this. The mind that's obsessed with being healthy. The mind that's obsessed with always being young. Uh, we all have it. Maybe some of you don't. But I, I, I know I do. Um, why not free yourself now of that? You don't, you see, here's, you may as well be one of those people because the truth is, as I look at you, you're pretty young. Okay? Uh, I mean, it doesn't look like someone has to feed you right now. Okay. But if this is going on in your mind, you're already, you're doing it to yourself so that your mind is making up a future 
where in it you're already decrepit, old, and struggling with this, and maybe you have 40 years, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but uh, begin to see that this apprehension, this kind of suffering, is based on the uh, vexation in the mind. Do you see what I... Yeah. But it's, it's imagination. You see, it's, a, it's you imagining how you're going to be when you're 90, or you're 88. You may not live that long, you may live longer, you may not have those problems. So, in the meantime, so you're getting hit twice. You're suffering now while you're a very a young person, and then when you really get to be that age, then you're going to get wham a second time. What? Okay. Okay. It's free. Your mind is free. Yeah. Please. As a beginner to this kind of meditation, I understand that a lot of it has to do with being mindful of the breath and being mindful of the But do you take some of these fears as someone who's getting older? And is part of the practice to try to be mindful of what those feelings are? Oh, I see. You're really new to this, though. The Buddha's teaching has nothing to do with the breath. That's a device. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful, natural, simple device, but it's all about awareness of what is. The breath can help you do that, and even uh, the breath teaching of the Buddha, initially it's used to, to develop a calm and clear mind. Okay. Now, let's say we're talking about some pretty heavy things tonight, right? We're talking about aging, sickness, and death, and that just is an idea. The day may come where you're in bed, you know, and you are sick. The day may come where you are dying. It, it will come, okay? Or suddenly you mind, you wake up one morning, you feel stiff, and suddenly, oh my God, I'm getting old, okay? So how do you practice with that? Um, if the, the breath can be used to calm and steady the mind, to quiet it, to give it some stability, so that you can then examine your fear of aging, fear of death, see into it, and to resolve that. Do you see what I'm getting at? So, yeah, that's right. So that finally, the breath is a, is a very beautiful, it's actually extraordinarily simple and profound door into deep wisdom and compassion. But it's the wisdom and compassion that's important. And the breath is useful insofar as it helps you learn to live in awareness. There are other methods that are used. Breath is just one we use a lot here. And so whatever helps you be awake, is, uh, then that's... Uh, that's that's what the Buddha is talking about. Like what? Those phrases are phrases that are chanted in monasteries sometimes every day, or you just you just. Uh, uh, I'll just, we don't have time, we're going to go into it in more detail, as that's exactly what I want to do, but I can give you a, a preview. Let's say, um, I'll use the Buddha's words. I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. Let me ask you, in your Christian meditation, did you ever use words? What word? Yes, and then, and that, then that's the end of the meditation. See, that's the beginning of our work here. The calm is a prelude. It put it, 
that enables the mind to be fit to then examine all the rest. But so that, but I can, we can, we can make up, use it, since you've had practice doing it, you could uh, use the word uh, aging, or you could improvise and just, uh, on the in-breath, aging, on the out-breath, inevitable. Or, I must age. Uh, or just take up those words and just say them, but now when you say them, you can sit and breathe, you don't have to make it so uh, systematic, just sit quietly, like get calm, however you do it, and then um, introduce those phrases, but really listen to what those words are. Uh, I'll read one. Just a, I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. And you can paraphrase it in your own language. I'm sure to become old. Sure to become old. I can't avoid aging. Hmm. Sure. And they're just words, but, they're, but if you, they can sink deeper and deeper into the heart and then they could evoke something. And when they do, then that's what you bring whatever level of samadhi or concentration of mind, stability of mind, join it and experience it and see the impermanent nature of that. See, that too is impermanent. It falls away and then there's peace. And so, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Um, but be creative. Um, the other day I was walking past the store on in Cambridge, it was a bookstore that I've gone to, oh, hundreds of times. Not in a long time, because they don't sell spiritual books, but I used, when I had more uh, conven- not conventional, academic, uh, psychological interests and so forth, it was called Mandrake's Bookstore. Many of you know it. And I knew Mand, I know Irving, you know, I knew it was a good store, and I bought my, and then suddenly, yeah, and suddenly, I guess I hadn't been up that street for a while, I walked past, and where's Irwin, where's Mandrake's? And it was a different kind of store with, you know, tape work, uh, you know, it was just something. They had demolished two stores, and I kept grabbing for it. It wasn't there, so I just paused. Oh, and I visualized. Uh, Mandrake was there, and now it's as if it was never there. I don't know where he is. All those books are gone. There's a, a whole new, fresh life. People, you could see them at work, and, you know, smiling, and with a cup of coffee and a donut, you know. Okay, and well, what happened to Irwin and that whole gang? You know, like... <laughs> gone. Oh, and so it evoked something. Some sadness, some feeling of loss, nice memories of everyone. I just stayed with it. And so it's in, it, in its own way, that's a small thing, but it contributes to uh, making this lawfulness real for you. See? Yeah. Use your creativity. Don't be afraid to play with these. Yeah. Please. Absolutely. They know they what? Then this is not relevant for them. These are just tools. No. Okay. It's language. Language problem. Okay. Okay, but here's what, here's what, here's the book. Uh, 
if you, uh, these are meant to, evo most people, these are, this is meant to counteract a complacency, this method. Each method has a, a meaning for, to it. The fact that people are not honoring the fact that they must get old. Okay. And when they are, uh, they're at war with it or in denial. Uh, you know, this is just a multi-billion dollar industry now to uh, help us uh, delay aging. There's some journal about uh, anti-aging. I've forgotten the name of it. It's, and they use a lot of very militaristic terms about the war on aging. A lot of articles on MDs and all this kind of... Um, what it's designed to get you to is exactly where your starting point. You're too wise for this saying, which is um, the body must age and the mind can be perfectly happy with an aging body. The mind can be perfectly happy with a sick body. The mind can be perfectly happy while it's dying. How could that be possible? But that's the fruit of spiritual practice. See, so, now I'm not saying you're there. If you are, please finish up the talk. <laughs> but, um, uh, but it can be misused in exactly the way that you're... you're uh, and maybe this phrase is not necessary for you. Don't use it. It's not important. Definitely. Yeah, no, but, okay. Okay, but wait a minute. Let's get back to one of the, the motives for doing the practice is to awaken you to how precious right here and right now is. It's, we're not trying to get the correct social, psychological, physiological uh, model of what life is. These are designed to help you wake up so that you can live fully now. If it helps you do that, then its job is done. You see, well, I don't know if I'm going to die in a split second and never even know it happened, or it's going to be dragged out for years. You're quite right. But the, the thought, the reflection, if it helps you understand that you don't have forever, in any case, and if that enables you to um, improve the quality of your life, to get your priorities in order, and from, a, from a, a Dharma point of view, getting your priorities in order means that... The, uh, that the Dharma is, for, is primary, that you organize your life through the framework of Dharma. That's what it means. Is that okay? Go ahead. And that's not true. Uh, first off, uh, I think you said a lot in, in your statement. The first statement is that when I... It, it, is it speculative, or are you talking about how you are right now? I mean, do you have, are you have, you have complete peace about not dying? Look. No, but I'm saying I don't even, I have a fear of practicing towards something that I don't want to Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.